I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to finding out what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness, the mess and the imperfection of life. Today's guest is a storyteller and in this conversation we travel across countries, across stories and experiences that will captivate you. Pip Drysdale is a best-selling author, musician and actor. She grew up in Africa, Canada and Australia, became an adult in New York and London and lives on a steady diet of coffee, dreams and literature. Not a bad diet, I reckon. (laughs) Her debut novel, The Sunday Girl, was a bestseller and has been published in the United States, Australia, Italy, Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Her second novel, The Strangers We Know, was also a bestseller, shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award and is currently being developed for television. Her third book is called The Paris Affair, also a bestseller. And her fourth book, The Next Girl, is out in Australia and New Zealand in December of 2022 and Canada in the spring of 2023. In this conversation, Pip shares a bit about her compulsion to write every single day. Well, as long as there's coffee. She talks about how she navigates her time and her energy. You're going to want to hear what she has to say about that. And she also shares what she's learned about life from some key experiences. One in particular where she shares of being in a car accident when she was 17. Stories connect us all, telling them with strength and vulnerability as someone who continues to explore life. Please enjoy the ever-engaging Pip Drysdale. Pip, it is great to connect with you. Thank you so much for having me. Great to to have you into this conversation. From what I've read, you are an author, a musician and an actor. What do these three things have in common for you? For me, it would be storytelling. For me, it's a it's they're all platforms by which to tell stories and to tell other people's stories and understand other people and how they um why they do the things they do because I'm always attracted for example in my novels to characters who who do slightly different things than what you would expect or make different choices or have gone through something really tough and then um it it changes their viewpoint you know so one of the stories the that connection to heart that's really powerful as a musician is there a particular yeah. instrument that you play or that like where did music where does music come into play for you well I, I mean, when I, I think, I mean, I don't really think of myself as a musician anymore because I haven't made a record in like 10 years, but when I did, I made a few and, um, I played guitar and I played piano and I sang. So I was, I always thought of myself predominantly as a songwriter. Um, it's just that I would write the songs and then perform the songs. You, you are a storyteller. I understand you were born in Cape Town and moved to Melbourne when you were seven years old. Tell me a little bit about yeah. your story, your upbringing. Oh, well, it was complicated. Um, let me think. Um, I started in Cape Town and I, um, I first I moved to Canada, actually. We were there for over, I think it was just over two years. So I learned to talk in Canada. I learned to um, toboggan in Canada. In fact, the very first tapes I have of me talking, I have a full on Canadian accent, which is hilarious because I don't know. Um, and then so cute. We went, <laughs> yeah, I know I'm talking all about my milk and cookies. Um, then um, we went back to Cape Town for a little bit, a very a short amount of time, but a little bit. And then we went over to Melbourne for seven years 
then to Zimbabwe for four years. Um, and then I went to advertising school in Cape Town for a year before coming back to Australia because my parents had moved here by then. Um, and then I pretty much immediately, I'd say a year later, I moved to New York. And then I came back to Australia for a bit. Then I went to London for seven years in all, although there was a bit of back and forth. Um, yeah, and now I am in Sydney. So a traveller and a traveller from a young age. What was yeah. it, uh, what prompted some of those moves as a as a family from Canada and then back to Cape Town to I Melbourne? think my parents were keen to get out of South Africa. Um, and so the first one was... Uh, we were immigrating to um, emigrating to Canada and then the reason we left Canada was my mom got pregnant again and decided it was way too cold to have a baby so um, we moved back to Cape Town and then they still wanted to emigrate so then we um, came to Australia which is significantly warmer um, so that, that was it really and then my dad was from Zimbabwe so and he really missed it and he missed his family and so we went back there for four years but then obviously things were pretty um, bad and dangerous there and Mugabe um, was and fantastic and so um, we left and came back to Australia. From your experience in because some yep. of that is quite different cultures not only different yep. weathers but different cultures uh, that you would have been experiencing are there things that you remember about those maybe cultural differences or whether it's <laughs> the accents or learning, learning how things are done around here? When I was a kid, things that I found very difficult moving around a lot were the fact, like, I found having an accent, because I always had an accent, no matter where we were moving, I always had a different accent, um, at least at the beginning, and then I'd start trying to take on wherever I was so that I fit in, but... I found that difficult because at the beginning, I didn't even know what an accent was. It hadn't even occurred to me that I spoke differently, you know. Of course. <laughs> um, there was that one. And then the other one was there are different names for things in different places. So, for example, you know, textures that you color in with that kids use a lot. So that's probably a useful one mm. because I was a kid. Um, they call, you call them textures in Australia. You call them neos in Zimbabwe. You call them cokies in um, South Africa. I can't remember what you call them in Canada because I think I was too young to be using them yet or if I was, I didn't know the name But because um, I wasn't at school yet. But that's like a lot of – that's a lot of different words for one thing and to remember which one you're supposed to use. So – or cookies and biscuits or, you know, there's a lot of um, – a lot of different words for the exact same thing, which I think was probably quite complicated for me because I was little. So yeah, I can imagine that that realization. You know, certainly that sense, particularly when you talk about accents, we all go, "Well, I don't have an accent; it's everyone else." Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. But then to be put into a culture where you sound different, you're the yeah. one. That would be quite interesting as a child to to understand that at a, quite an early age. Yeah, I think it just made me think something was wrong with me. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not speaking the same? Like... <laughs> <laughs> or what's wrong with them, maybe? Yeah, why? Better. I totally should better have been. That would be a healthy that. way. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> what's their problem? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> even, even beyond, and you talked about... Um, traveling and as we travel we we gather stories and you know you talk about this kind of sense of being a storyteller as well what is your do you have a an approach or philosophy or I guess a an understanding of the power of storytelling why it's important or why you're you're drawn to it 
You know, so much of it is a mystery to me. I don't even know why I feel so compelled to write every day because it's not easy and it's not like it's always fun. I do love it, but I but I do feel compelled to wake up and write every day. And so it's almost a part of me. And I do know that I've been doing it for ever since I was a little kid. So maybe it was my, maybe it's, it was at the beginning, my way of making sense of the world. Maybe it, I I really don't know. Maybe it was entertaining myself. Maybe it was the fact that everything was always shifting and changing around me. And so my imagination and stories were the one thing that I had constant. Um, But I do think that as an adult, they matter so much to me because I feel that you can find a lot of solace in a story and a lot of connection. Um, You can read a book and things will resonate with you and make you feel like you're not the only one who's ever thought that or felt that or um, had that moment. And I think that's just so incredibly important to the fabric of being human. So that's why they matter to me now, but um, I can only guess about earlier. Talk to me a little bit about that compulsion to write, that that almost kind of sense of needing to write. I really... I don't really understand it. I've always had it in terms of some version of creativity. When I was writing songs, I was obsessed by it and I'd be doing it all the time. And it was almost less about what I made and more about the discovery as I went. Um, And with books, it's a little bit, it's the same, I suppose, because you're always uncovering things and you're uncovering things about what you think and you're uncovering things about how the world works and it's like this puzzle that you're putting together. And I don't know, I do, I do experience it as a bit of a compulsion though, because I certainly, um, I don't know what I'd do with myself if I didn't wake up and put on coffee and write every morning, you know, um, it's not something that I, I'm always happy to do or I'm, but I always do it, you know, and it's not discipline. Let me tell you. (laughs) Is it a non-negotiable? Like, do you have a set place do you have a set time frame that you write no I just need caffeine I need coffee and I need my computer and that's pretty much it it could be in bed it could be in a hotel room it could be absolutely anywhere Um, I just need to do it before I can really think too much because I feel that there's like this trap door at the beginning of consciousness where I I'm not anxious about anything yet and I'm not really um, awake enough to be self-editing too much and a lot of the stuff that comes out of me early in the morning is um, it's just better especially when I'm writing new material it's very strange actually because I find that if I'm writing a new scene for example early in the day is the best time to do it and then it all becomes a bit sketchy and maybe I'll do a little bit later maybe I won't who knows what's going to happen right but um, as it gets towards the end of the day and towards the evening that's when I get better at writing uh, at editing things or amending them or um, kind of infusing them with a little bit more color and detail whereas earlier on it's more just like what happens and the basis of it I, I think maybe my brain works differently at different times of the day I think that's such a useful insight and probably a recognition, no doubt, over time of just seeing what happens and how that comes to play. But almost this tap into the subconscious or the imagination early and then edit it, you know, as the the light of day comes across. 
with um, do you find that early morning writing is some of that just pure streams of consciousness or you figuring out life and is some of that actually writing for a book or a project that you're working on? Oh, no, it's always for a book. Okay, I do actually keep a diary and I must write in it because, like, for example, where are we? We're in October and I've written 80,000 words this year for 2022. So I'm like, clearly I write in my diary but I could not tell you when, or I don't do it. Like I don't write three pages a day for a while. I did that whole, um, Julia Cameron, three hours of morning pages a day. Um, but I definitely don't do that. Sometimes I'll write a paragraph. Sometimes I'll write a page. Sometimes I'll write two lines, but I don't even do it every day. I do it when I kind of remember, or if I'm struggling to do my actual, what I count as my actual work. Um, but I will definitely start with trying to write whatever scene it is that I'm trying to get down. Because usually the way that I work is I'll get the crux of a scene down and it might only be a paragraph, but then I'll go back in a few times and fill it out with other things as I realize them or come to understand things about the character. But it's getting the first part that's the that's the um, anxiety provoking part because you're always looking at it going, there's nothing there and I have to put something there. (laughs) The void of possibility. The void of the blank page. It's like. (laughs) Yeah. How do you wrestle with, with doubt and uncertainty, whether it's in those early stages, but when you're creating something, it might be a song, a book, writing. I think that's some of the things that stop creativity and uncertainty is that this sucks, this is not good enough, Yeah, I think, <laughs> or what could I do? What's your yeah. relationship like with that? Oh, I feel it, obviously. I think every creative feels it, right? Um, and I think you just keep going. Like if you keep going, you'll get something good. It may not – when I – back in the day, because, like, I don't write them anymore, but back in the day when I wrote songs, I'd always liken it to um, a bit like if you turn on a tap and first – oh, no, I, it was like a bucket full of mud, and I'd be like, you just have to keep looking through the bucket of mud, and then eventually you find a diamond, right? But you have to get through the whole bucket of mud before you'll find that diamond. So expecting it means that you don't give up, right? And it's a little bit the same with books. I mean, I think there's a little less mud, um, but you – Often I will throw away great swords of writing because it's not useful or I don't want it there or I've gone down the wrong track. Or, But it has told me so much about the character, which then will come out in the, the things that I do write. You know, there's a lot of invisible work that goes with writing a book. There are a lot of deleted words and a lot of deleted thoughts and deleted memories for the character. But then those memories give me insight into who she is and why she does what she does. And even if it turns out to be one line, it still infuses it with truth. So, so yeah. I can't remember what the question was and I hope I answered oh, it. But like <laughs> <laughs> you totally answered it. And I think that sense of, um, well, the question was around that wrestle with doubt um, and is this good enough? But I think yeah. that, that sense of going down the wrong path, I love that word of infusion, it kind of infuses, infuses yeah. back into what that right right path is uh, yeah. and what that looks like. Also, if you can view it as a, tr- as a process of elimination. So if you, learn, if you just learn to look at it as, well, okay, yes, I have written 10,000 words, I'm going to chuck in the bin, but they've told me a lot about the character and they've also told me that that is not the right path, which means now we only have 45 to look at, not 46. So. Is there anything that you do to 
maybe negotiate with yourselves on the mornings when you say, I don't feel like writing or I don't want to or this is hard, but you're compelled to anyway. Is there tools well, and strategies you have? I find the fact that I have a cup of coffee um, sitting there, I'm trying to cut down to like one or one and a half at the moment because I was going for like five and it's not good for my energy, man. But um, I find that having that means that I'm quite happy to be there to start with, okay, because I get to have my coffee. If I was trying to do it without any caffeine, I'm not sure I'd be um, quite as compelled. And I don't know, usually I'm okay with it. Usually I, even if I really don't want to be there, I will be there for at least half an hour or an hour. Um, and on a good day, if it's all coming, I'll only be there for two hours. It's not like a big difference between the two, you know, and then I'll come back to it later. Um, I do find that there is a limit to how long I can truly be focusing and creative for. Like I do think um, I kind of have these spurts of high activity where my brain's really working and then I need to take a little bit of a break. Um, otherwise, I get really miserable about it. So I go off and do something that I want to do, like, you know, maybe watch TV, go for a walk, whatever. And then later on, I'll go, oh, I better go sit down again and try again. And then I'll do a little bit more and then I'll go stuff this and then I'll go watch TV again or read a book or, you know, and by the end of the day, I kind of feel like I have done no work and I'm a really lazy individual, but then there are words on the page and I have done work, you know, but because I haven't been chained to it for, for like eight hours and got the same amount done. Cause I have tried that as a, um, as a strategy, you know, forcing myself to sit there and nothing good came of that. Like the work was bad and I was miserable and tired. So I don't do that anymore. There's some really interesting research actually that that attest to that sounds like it's a live case but it, it talks about length of time if you're productive for an hour three hours doesn't mean you're three times more productive no In fact, definitely I think not about 90 minutes yeah I feel like 90 minutes is good otherwise you're just like yeah, yeah otherwise so that, also I get a bit miserable and no good writing comes from that no <laughs> talk to me talk to me about the transition from songwriting to yeah. book writing Honestly, I hadn't been doing a lot of songwriting for a while. I hadn't been doing much music. I'd basically just been dating men who were not good for me and like drinking too much booze, which I'm now sober. Okay, so seven years sober. So I can say that. But um, congratulations. But thank you. It just happened. Like 1st of October was my seven year sober anniversary. And I never thought I'd get to even one. So I don't even know how I did seven. But anyway, I um, so back then I was just like, I'd had a couple of years like that. I really wasn't doing a lot of creative work. And then I went through this terrible breakup and um, that spurred me on to write my first book for a number of different reasons, but essentially that spurred me on to write The Sunday Girl. And at first I was just looking for like a project, you know, something to take my mind off the pain, like something to do. And I kind of always had in the back of my mind that I really believed in it and I really believed it would get published. I mean, that sounds so incredibly naive given the um, likelihood of your first book getting published, right? But I did have this deep kind of belief in it. And so I really just applied myself and I wrote it. And then I then after that, I sent it out to... Um, to different agents and I'd, I'd get rejections, but they were always very nice rejections. Like, like they weren't the form letter ones where they haven't even read it. They were like ones where they had read it, read the first three chapters and these were the things they liked and these were the things they had issues with, right? And then each time I'd get one of those, I would make um, the changes and then I would send it out to someone else. And then slowly but surely, I kind of learned through that process. Like I really, I got a feel for... Um, 
for what I was doing well and what I was doing badly. And it was a really um, big educational um, exercise, really. And I remember the one guy came back to me and he was like, I really like it, but there are way too, there are far too many, he was British, far too many aphorisms in there for me. And I had to Google what an aphorism was, even though I was clearly using them. <laughs> what is it? I don't it's know. like, I, it's things like, you know, quippy little sayings. Like, um, I think one of them that I was using in the Sunday Girl back in the day, like first draft was something like, um, I can't remember the actual line. The actual line was probably good, but the general gist was um, reason and um, reason, you know, love, love and logic never did make good bedfellows or something like that. You know, like some kind of like very quippy, kind mm-hmm. of cliche, but kind of in a clever little way. Um, and there were lots of those in my book. So I took them all out. And I learned not to use them too much. I think it was a songwriting thing because in songs you need like the odd Mm. aphorism in a chorus. That's essentially what you're aiming towards, right? Um, So I stopped doing that. When you did get the the yes from a publisher, what was that moment like? It was amazing. I mean, it didn't come easily. It um, I event originally my manuscript had been passed on, and they'd read it and said. I can see that you can definitely write page turning fiction and I can see that you can do this, but it does need work. And then he gave me the names of three um, independent editors that I could go and work with. Right. So I literally had no money at the time. I think I had to get a, like a grant from the WA government in order to um, pay for it. Like I was literally very, very poor at that point. So um, they, but they gave it to me and I went to this editor and she gave me her advice and I changed it. And, but six months later, I sent it back to the publisher and they gave me a two book deal. And it, it was life-changing. I remember just feeling like so, um, so grateful. And the weirdest thing was this feeling that came over me. I don't even know if I've managed to do it. Right. (laughs) But the feeling that came over me was just, I want to be able to help. Like, isn't that a strange feeling? Like you get this great book deal and your feeling mm. is I want to be able to help. It's so strange, isn't it? I still don't know what the hell what, or uh, how. How do you interpret that I, or where do you I don't think know. That, that came from? I really don't know. I still don't know. But that was definitely the, um, that was the feeling. And I wrote it down in my diary, but I just, it never really um, made a lot of sense to me. So Interesting. There might be a revelation at some point as to to what that is. I do think that some of my books probably give a sense of um, solace to women and a sense of um, a sense of not being alone to women. So maybe in that way, I I actually, I don't know. I'm just like grabbing at straws here. (laughs) The, The Sunday Girl is a is a an amazing book. I actually picked it up and read it a couple of years ago. Um, Yeah. And so it went on to become a bestseller. It's now being published yeah. in ISO, I understand, the US, Australia, Italy, Poland, the yeah. Czech Republic and Slovakia. Yes. And you've got two other books and a fourth one coming out. Yeah. The Your second book, The Strangers We Know, is also a bestseller, shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award. And I understand is currently being developed for television. Talk to yeah. me a little bit about that journey of, of that book. Strangers we know, let's see. Well, after The Sunday Girl, I had been, before it even came out, I was contracted to do two books. 
and I didn't have a second book. So I had been crazily writing what I thought was going to be my second book. But it, when I handed it in, just before The Sunday Girl came out, my publisher um, at the time was like, no. And she totally hated it. And the thing is, is that I totally hated it too. Like, I, it's not like she said it and I was like, no, you're wrong. She said it and I was like, yep, let's get rid of it. So I threw it in the bin and then I had... Um, I just had to write a new book and I only had like, I think it was, she offered to give me a little bit longer to do it. And so in my, and I needed, honestly, I needed to get paid. So I was like, well, um, I better write this thing. And I wrote it in probably four and a half months. Um, the strangers we know, which is really quick for writing a book. And, um, it almost killed me doing it so quickly, but it, um, it did really well. So I'm glad this, I'm glad that became my second book and that the other one got thrown in the bin, you know? Would would I be right in describing that your genre for writing is psychological thriller? And if so, what pulls you towards this genre? Um, I'd say that for the most part, yeah, it is psychological thriller or thriller. Um, but there is always, I also appeal to other readers too. Like I appeal to a lot of people who like, um, for example, um, Taylor Jenkins Reid and also um, Colleen Hoover and um, Sally Rooney. I, I do appeal to those readers as well. And I think it's because um, there's always a contemporary romance running through my books um, and contemporary like issues that we're all dealing with. So um, I think what draws me to that kind of hybrid of genre is that that's what's that's how I experience life. I experience it a little bit like a psychological thriller with love running through it. And a little like, you know, that weird kind of, um, it's not just one or the other for me. It really does have both elements. And so for me, a book that doesn't um, have both elements wouldn't feel true to my voice and like my worldview. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's probably why I write them like that. One of the things that, and again, I'd be interested in whether this is um, your kind of take in reading through, I feel a sense of strength and vulnerability in your female characters yeah. that you put onto the page, that it's not one or the other that actually both coexist. How do you navigate and work that tension or craft that ten tension? I just try to make characters? them real. You know, I try to make them like real women because I don't feel like any real woman is all one or the other. You know, we both we all have both sides of us. In fact, that's one of the things I really try to do in my books is I try to give them a sense of, you know, there's a whole concept of light femininity and dark femininity. And, you know, so you've got Eve on one side and Lilith on the other. And so then society puts you into the Madonna or the whore or they make you, um, the femme fatale or the the ingenue you know it like pop culture doesn't tend to love a, a female character having the capacity to be both so I try to give my characters a little bit more of a sliding scale so they might be different places on that sliding scale but they can definitely go a little bit either way right um and I feel that I, I know why I started doing that, like with the Sunday girl, when, because she's in a, what's essentially, I mean, I don't want to ruin this for anyone, but you figure it out pretty quickly. Um, because she's essentially coming out of a domestic violence situation and a very toxic um, relationship. 
I was very keen to make her not what I consider to be the perfect victim, you know, because there's a sense with society whereby the only female characters that everyone gets behind are the ones who are just always do the right thing and always take the high ground and always are perfect and pure and usually they're mothers and, you know, like there's this purity about them. So everyone's like, yes, nobody should hurt her. But, you know, nobody should hurt a woman who's not like that either. So it was very, I was um, very keen to create that. And I try to create that sense of it's okay to be you and like flawed and not like 100% one way or the other Um, with all of my characters. It's really important to me that women are allowed to be seen as whole human people, you know, like not um, just falling into some, some special little box because it's comfortable for everybody. So um, that's probably why I write them that way, because I, I believe that all women are that way. I'm definitely that way. I have, I'm completely sensitive and vulnerable and cry a lot and get super miserable and depressed. But then I also have this real strength and this um, courage and this ability to throw myself into life and do it even though I'm terrified, you know. So I think that I believe and every woman I know is a little bit like that. So that's what comes to mind as you're talking is the 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 permission to amplify both of those, that that relatability of of that how much of um I mean it's probably a question you've had before but how much of your characters and your own personality start to kind of come into play when you're writing through stories and writing through you know those those story arcs probably some but not all like I feel that you know to start with we're always shifting and changing for example I am definitely not the exact same person I was two years ago or two years before that or two years before that and in two years I'll be a different version of me anyway so you know it's pretty easy for me to um, use myself um, and put it put myself into characters and kind of bleed into them I do feel that I have to put a bit of myself into each one and what I and I do mean it when I say bleed into them because that's how it feels because otherwise there's not that sense of humanity and that sense of the actual feelings and the actual thoughts and you know usually the things that you would never say out loud though those are the things that I try to put into my books um but they're not me they it's not these are not non-fiction books you know but they are facets of me which I then take as a kernel and then then kind of imagine if that actually was me and like turn it into a real rounded human being you know so we've we've talked about those two books you've also got the Paris Affair and then yeah. a fourth book coming out uh, yes. we're talking in October of 2022 so towards the no, end no, no. Of yeah so December yeah um December yeah, yeah. so called the next girl which is really yeah. really exciting yeah. talk to me a little bit about maybe the premise without giving it away of the next girl okay should i just read you the back of the book that might be easier so then i don't ruin yes. it Okay, because otherwise I'll totally, this one has so many twists in it. I'm really scared when people ask me what it's about because I'm like, I'm going to ruin it. I can tell. Okay. So the main character's name is Billy. Okay, so you need to know that. It's short for Wilhelmina. All right. When Billy wakes up in a strange guy's bed, her first thought is, what happened last night? She can't even remember meeting him. And how the hell did she get to Coney Island? Then reality bites and the memories flood in. The reason she was in that bar to start with, today she's going to get fired because yesterday her law firm lost a big case 
Jane Delaney versus Samuel Grange, and it looked like it was her fault. It wasn't. Yet now Samuel Grange is free to drive off into the sunset in his stupid Porsche and do it all again to another woman. And all Billy can think is, what about the next girl? And the one after that? But there is nothing she can do to stop him. Unless she could expose the truth about him on her own. Then everyone would see what he was really like, and he wouldn't be able to do it again. The problem is, the only way to protect the next girl is to become the next girl. And well, that could be a little risky, even deadly. Something really, um, not only we talked about that strength and vulnerability, but quite provocative and tantalising around the, the sense of possibility that sits in yeah. the way that you write the books and the way that they come together, which is um, – so thank you for sharing and we won't we won't cool. talk any more about it yeah. <laughs> uh, and can definitely um, just share a bit more once the once the book comes out yeah. in, um, in December. How much of the writing process uh, involves research and, and I guess understanding kind of context for the areas and things that you um, – yeah, want to explore what's what's that in terms of how you write and and the the research that you do? Okay, well, for the next girl, for example, um, I've I wrote a lot of it during um, COVID, and I usually travel to the place where I'm writing a book and spend at least a few months there so that I know it inside out. Right. Um, I usually actually base it in places that I've lived. So with the next girl, because I couldn't go anywhere, I based her in New York um, and I put her in the apartment that I lived in when I was living in New York, because that way I could immediately imagine everything around her and what it was like for her. And um, and it gave me a real sense of um it just helped me to kind of put myself there. Then I used a lot of Google Maps and um, would go up and down the streets so that I could, because everything's changed. I lived there a while back. And then the other thing I did was I used a lot, then I'd um, look things up on YouTube if I needed exact sounds from the subway or, you know, um, the, uh, you know, when you, when you arrive at a subway station and they say things over the loudspeaker and I'd need to know exactly what they said, I'd look that up on um, YouTube or Instagram or, you know, I did a lot of research that way. But then also, for example, she works as a paralegal and I haven't worked as a paralegal. So I asked quite a few questions of um, a lawyer that I knew about paralegals. Um, then I asked another one about the structure of who governs the paralegals. Then I read a whole book on, um, I mean, I read many books for this book, to be honest, but I read one called Bad Lawyer, which explained to me the a little bit around um, what it was like working within the legal profession and, go, and doing um, like legal studies in the US because I needed to get a feel for that. Um, yeah, I read a couple of really good books for this one, actually. The other book that I read that was super interesting that I'd highly recommend was called The Right to Sex. Um, and I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it, but it's it's basically like um, it was like a deep dive into like, you know, a little bit like Men Who Hate Women, that book, um, which was Laura, Laura Bates maybe. Um, and it's about like the manosphere and, you know, um, online misogyny groups and that kind of thing. So it was very enlightening. I learned a lot. So so a lot of research. Fascinating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to dive into not only the, yeah, getting into those characters, knowing those worlds, but the sensory experiences yeah. as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Would have been really, really interesting. 
I want to yeah. shift tact a little bit um, from your writing, but no doubt they kind of overlap. You've had a couple of experiences throughout your life uh, yeah. and just before we hit record you were saying that some of these have kind of, I guess, you know, impacted how you see the world, uh, yeah. how you move through the world. One of those was a bad car accident when you just yeah. turned 17. What impact yeah. did that experience have on you? Um, honestly, I think it changed everything. I think before it, I had very linear perspectives on life. I mean, despite the fact that I'd moved around a lot and you'd think that I would have had very um, different ways of looking at the world, this one experience definitely changed things considerably for me because I, we were going through a stop sign, I mean, going through a light and we were going to turn and somebody ran the red light on the other side. So they bashed into my door, which was the passenger side, and then the car spun and then my door hit um, hit a pole. And the glove compartment, which was in front of me, ended up actually underneath the steering wheel. So it was a very bad car accident. And I remember very vividly, um, which I wouldn't expect to, but I had this moment where it must have been when it collided and it felt like an expanded period of time, but it really wouldn't have been. It would have been so short, like a couple of seconds maybe as we were spinning. But I remember um, not being able to breathe and I'm guessing that maybe the the seatbelt was winding me and I had this um, and I remember thinking, I don't want to, like at first I tried to scream, like yell for someone to help me, but I didn't know who I was yelling to. I didn't even know where I was or who I was. Um, and then I remember thinking, I don't want to die. And then I thought, oh, fuck, there was so much more I wanted to do. And like, then I blacked out and I thought I died. I did not die. Okay. <laughs> I like literally woke up. Well, I <laughs> kind of woke up. I mean, there was blood everywhere. Cause I'd cut my head really badly. I had like 10 stitches in my forehead and like couldn't walk for a couple of weeks cause I kept fainting, but it, um, but that, that memory of that, it really stayed with me um, for a while. And I, I think it changed the way that I approached life because, one, I had this very real understanding, very young, that I was going to die and that it was definitely going to happen. And, two, I really didn't want that to be my last thought. I really, really, really wanted my last thought to be something like, oh, my God, I did so much. Or, you know, it was pretty traumatizing to me that I, that there was so much in the world that I wanted to do. And I'm sure that's why I made a lot of the choices I made, why I was willing to just, like, get on an airplane and go to New York and why I have – why historically I have taken quite a lot of big leaps of faith, you know. Um, it always felt like there was this real sense of urgency, Um because I didn't know when it was going to end and did any of it matter anyway. And like, um, I don't know that it was like, there was this lightness that came with it and this heaviness. It was a, it was a funny thing. And then, um, other experiences after that just, um, kind of consolidated that initial realization, you know, and it's almost like every time I'd lapse into a state of forgetting that life would throw something else and I would remember, you know, and I can only imagine that that remembering is quite a visceral one because of the yeah. depth of experience that you had at that moment. There's yeah. there's something I think true for all of us that that sense of, but there's so much more I have to do. Um, yeah. And what you like kind of describe as the lightness and the darkness of that is not wanting to die with that being the last thought. 
Yeah. How do we throw ourselves at at things and and sense of kind of possibility? Yeah. You, when you were living in New York, because uh, there are, I guess, collective experiences that all of yeah. us have. Yeah. One of those being 9-11 where you ask a lot of people, even here in Australia, where were you when you heard about that? Yeah. You were living in New York when that yeah. happened. Take me to yeah. that morning. What were you doing? Where were you? And what was that experience like? Um, okay, so I was actually, um, I don't know how much you know about the World Trade Centre, but they it used to be a place where a lot of trains would come into. So I mean, it was a huge transport hub as well. So one of the trains that would go in there was um, the PATH train. So the PATH train takes you from just across the river in like Hoboken or Jersey City Heights and you catch the PATH train, takes you because a lot of commuters live there, takes you across the river and boom, you're in um, Manhattan. I mean, I can't remember the exact layout, but it felt like that. Um, Anyway, I was in, I just moved in with a friend and she was in um, Jersey City Heights. I was supposed to be on the PATH train. I was supposed to be there at nine o'clock in the morning picking up photographs across the street because that was what was happening. I was acting at the time and we were about to open a play and the photographer had said, come get them at nine in the morning. Um, But I didn't go. Um, My alarm didn't go off or I decided not to. I really can't remember that part. I just know I didn't go. And I was still lying in bed. a couple of hours, like maybe an hour later when my dad finally got through because um, he'd been trying to call but all the lines had been down and he um, and he was like have you seen what's happened and I hadn't and I went through and got my roommate to turn on the tv and it was there and we were watching um, well I don't know the exact time frames because we were watching when the second plane hit so I don't know exactly I'd have to I actually don't know but I was watching when the second one hit and um, she knew exactly what had happened like she instinctively knew that this was a bad thing I thought that there was just some bad pilot on the loose who just done like made a mistake it never even occurred to me that it was like on purpose it never occurred to me that it was and then she started saying it and I remember thinking she must be wrong but she wasn't wrong and um so then there was that which was just like it just kind of flipped reality a little bit you know um but Um, and then after that though, for months, there were other things like, for example, the, I was working at an investment bank as my day job at the time. And there were, um, we had a bomb scare, um, twice a day, every day in that bank. So every twice a day, we'd all have to go down the stairs, like, cause I was working on like the 40th floor or something. Um, and then there was like, you know, anthrax being sent to people. So everyone was opening their mail with gloves and like, then all the, um, or the printouts of people's faces in the subways. And it was, um, it was a very, it was a harrowing time. And I think it was harrowing for everybody, like in like everyone, um, especially the poor people who lost someone. But I think, um, I think for me, it just really um, kind of solidified that feeling of life is just so short and you just don't know. You just don't know. You go to sleep one night. You just don't know what's coming the next day, you know? And I don't know if it would have impacted me the exact same way if I hadn't had the car accident three years before, but because um, I was 20 at that point. But it was, um, yeah, so there was that. Did you stay in New York for, for a while after that? Yeah, I was there for, I think, 
maybe a year, maybe a little more. I don't know. It gets a bit fuzzy, like, you know, time frames when they're a long way away. But it was like at least, I'd say it was about a year because that happened in 2001, right? So, yeah, it was at least a year. These, yeah, these experiences that, that jolt us and, and can leave us with a, with a sense of uncertainty um, yeah. can definitely kind of have, have an impact. What was, it, what was the feeling like on the streets of New York in those kind of months um, following? Um, straight away, like, I don't, I really don't think, I think I have like this really delayed sense of understanding of things. Like, I don't really respond to things when they're big immediately. Like, I kind of just almost, it's almost like it hasn't happened. Like, it's this weird denial thing. Um, so I was out there, like, going to the gym and, like, on the treadmill, looking out the windows. It hadn't really hit me. It didn't hit me for about, a, I say, a month and a half. But... Then I broke up in this massive rash and got super depressed. But at the beginning, I just kind of, um, I kept doing things. So I went to the gym and the streets were bare, like completely empty. Um, the one thing I will say is that the first responders, like there was, they were amazing. And there was a real sense of camaraderie amongst New Yorkers. I just remember that. I remember people helping each other and being kind to each other. I really remember that. And the sense of, um, closeness and that was not there before you know you saw a real um soft warm side of people at least at the very beginning and then I was actually in a play and we opened it um a few days later and it was packed people were still going out to the theaters at least at the beginning like it was a um and everyone was laughing and it was well, this is my personal experience here. I'm sure other people had different experiences, but this was mine. Um, and it was, I don't know, maybe we were running on adrenaline. It was okay. And then it just, then I just started really understanding the gravity of it. Like the, um, and that, that really, I don't know, it just impacted me. I suppose it impacted everyone, right? Like. Hugely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think in a lot of ways there's, there's experiences like that that our brains just aren't hardwired to be able to comprehend in the yeah. moment and sometimes even when you talk about that kind of body breaking out into a rash I think our, yeah. our bodies can feel things before we yeah. think we're feeling them yeah <laughs> and so be strange, some of those experiences it? yeah oh anyway yeah. so that was that was that <laughs> yeah yeah and it probably talks a bit to that the the strength and vulnerability that, you know, we were talking before about your characters, but you know yeah. that in the, some of the toughest of times, we see the best and the worst of humanity. We see yeah. that collective sense of kind of coming together in a way when yeah. when uncertainty kind of goes up and goes, goes through as well. Yeah. Um, one of the other experiences you, you mentioned, and, you know, I'm sorry to hear this, but you, your father passed away last year. Um, and that being a, not only tough, but no doubt sudden kind of experiences, how, how has that kind of changed or impacted your view, your approach to life, your feeling towards this sheer volume of things that we need to get done? (laughs) Do you know, it's funny because I'd say those first two, when those first two impacted me in a way that I was like, screw this, I'm just going to live. I'm going to like go out there and I'm going to do things and I'm going to throw myself in. Like it really kind of fired me up. But 
the loss of my dad impacted me differently. I, I genuinely couldn't be bothered doing anything for a while. God knows how I wrote a book. Like, honestly, I don't know. But um, I, it really, it impacted me very differently. And maybe it's because someone I loved very deeply had actually died. You know, it wasn't just the potential of death, the potential of loss, the potential of mm. end of life. It was actual risk, like visceral, holding his hand, making him playlists, cutting up his food for him, and then he's gone. Like, um, I think, so I found that, it, I found it um, shook me up a lot more than I anticipated. Like, you know, you, you know, you'll be sad. You don't know. Oh, I'm going to cry. I'm so sorry. Hey. <laughs> um, you don't know how bad. So, but, yeah. you know, I think I'm, I mean, I know you can't tell it right now, but I think for the most part I'm coming out of it now. Like for the most part I'm happy now and I have got that kind of like I want to live and I want to like throw myself into life again thing. But that one, that one really knocked me, you know. And I think, I think maybe loss yeah. of a parent always does. Absolutely. These are the people who have been there from the start of our yeah. story, our own stories. Um, good, bad, indifferent. They yeah. they they know elements of us that, yeah. that just other people won't. Um, and and they and hold pieces of, of that story that others won't. Yeah. It's like I have the same feet as my dad. <laughs> like, how do you do that? Like, yeah. There'll only be one other person like that and uh, that, you know, I think the the depth of grief and the depth of love are the two sides of that same coin. I was was sharing my father passed away at the start of last year as well and it's, there is a gap, there is a, thank you and for you as well, there is this this gap and uh, a legacy that we get to carry his feet, you know, part yeah. of them kind of forward yeah. with with that with that um yeah, in terms of, of what's next. And grief, you know, it comes, it hits at different times and um and it yeah. informs kind of who we are in those those next phases yeah. as well. It changes you though, right? So that's what I was meaning before. Like you be I'm I become a different person each year, not on purpose, but just through what life has thrown at me and how and so then things that used to seem hugely important now don't seem hugely important because you're like well no one died we're good you know whereas like before that it yeah it was different and so and I know that now for example I um the right book that I'm writing now my fifth book has got a different energy to for example the next girl like the next girl actually the girl has lost her mom um but years ago like seven years ago And so I got to process a lot of um, grief in that book, you know. So it was quite, it was, you know, everything comes out in a way in your work. I think that is the one really valuable, wonderful thing about being any kind of creative is that you have this way in which to, um, to use the things, the nonsensical bad things that life throws at you and put them into a context where they make sense, you know. The ability to be able to figure it out. As you put, yeah. it, put it, whether it's on the page, whether it's in yeah. the words. Your 
So writing the fifth book, in terms of yeah. that, do you find having that next project is important for you? Yeah, I find that um, this one just kind of like um, while I was doing the final like proofreads and stuff of the next girl, um, this one just kind of started. And so I just jotted it down and I thought, oh, I'll look at it later. But but now I've got quite a few words. I mean, I've got like 20,000, I think, maybe. I mean, probably... I'd say 15,000 I love. And then there's like five to seven sketchy ones. <laughs> so, but, um, but so it's already started, which is good. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love how the sketchy ones, they're going to have to step up if they want to stay, right? They <laughs> really are. Otherwise they're just going to be like backstory that for me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, in terms of, um, what's next and you know I think it sounds like writing is always going to be a part of your world do you yeah. see uh the the writing of books being something that will continue for you um, I plan on it like, honestly I I want to write one a year or one every 18 months for the rest of my life like I feel that um I feel like it suits my personality as well like I've loved all the different creative things I've done but I do specifically love that I can do this one at home um in my bed wearing my pajamas you know and I can um and it doesn't matter how um how much life might be affecting me that way that day in fact it's a good thing if it's affecting me because it allows me to help it affect the character whereas when you're doing anything performative then I'm sure there are people who manage to use that when they're performing um, I would just find, I just found it more anxiety provoking than anything, knowing that I wasn't in my best place and like having to perform. Whereas with this, it's different because not being in your best place can often mean that you write your best line, you know, like, so your most human line, the one that people will go, Oh God, yeah, me too. You know, whereas if you're always up, possibly, I mean, maybe you can write a really happy book, but not my kind of books. My books have some stuff going on. So Yeah. <laughs> so they inform, they're useful. Yeah. <laughs> with with that, um, and I think that's a great that's a great way to kind of see it. It's all just life. With yeah. that, even in the life it requires it requires energy, it requires that ability for you to be able to manage your own state manage your own kind of mindset in amongst yeah. life and and even as we kind of talked about even if it's in grief and loss mm. or just in the busyness of life what are yeah. the things that you do practically tactically in order yeah. to replenish your own energy okay well to start with I try to um I try not to overschedule myself where I possibly can. I mean, obviously sometimes where you're doing um, book tours and what have you, you have to overschedule yourself and that's just part of it. And, you know, you're just going to cope. Right. Um, but then I do other things like I try to be gentle with myself. So I try to do this thing where I do what I want to do. Right. Luckily, what I want to do is wake up and drink coffee and write. Um, but then if I want to go and go for a walk, I'll do that. If I want to watch TV, if I want to do Pilates, because I have a Pilates machine at home, which I love with all my being, um, I can do that. If I want to read a book, I can do that. And then if I want to write some more, I can. I find that by doing what I feel that I want to do, which is usually um does incorporate quite a lot of the things 
I should do. So for example, at some point I'll want to send my accounts to my tax guy because I don't want to get in trouble. Do you know, at some point I will want to do that. So I will do it. Right. Um, so I find that trying as far as I can within the realms of possibility, um, doing what I want to do as opposed to what I've just decided I have to do helps. And I find that I do quite a bit of yin yoga, um, which I find helps me massively. For some reason, it doesn't even calm me down. I will be exhausted. I'll do yin yoga. And then afterwards, I actually feel quite perky. Um, and I will journal a bit and I'll talk to friends and I'll try my best to, to see downtime and relaxing time and nothing time as vital parts of the process. Like that is a new thing for me. Um, I used to feel like I needed to be doing something all the time that was productive, but then I came to realize that actually my best ideas come when I'm not doing that. My best ideas come when I'm lying in my bed, staring at the ceiling, feeling completely lazy and unproductive, and then boom, I have the best idea and I can go do it, you know? So trying to see those as vital and that recovery time is part of it. It's like if you do three hours of very hard concentrating, or even in my case, sometimes I'll do 14 hours of very hard concentrating, then I will, I'll probably be a bit washed out for a day. And that just has to be okay. You know, I just have to be okay with not um, having any energy. And then it comes back, you know, um, a little bit of acceptance of yourself and your own capabilities, because you are just a human being, I think goes a long way goes a huge, huge long way. I'm smiling as you're saying, going, oh, I get the best ideas when I'm unproductive. I know if like there'd be a voice in my head going, yeah, three minutes, three minutes. And then if it doesn't happen, yep. <laughs> it's not yes. working. <laughs> so, um, sometimes <laughs> we put that pressure on ourselves, that's right? When it, that's not the goal. <laughs> so true. <laughs> How in amongst that? How have you learnt to say no to things? Because I think we're programmed and probably more so mm. as women to yeah. be nice, to say yes, to be accommodating, yeah, to be easy to work with. Yeah. What's helped you to be able to say no to things? I don't know. I don't even know that I do say no. Like what are we – I'm trying to think of what I say no to. Um, you mean like social engagements or you mean like like what are we talking about? I need yeah, well, probably just where you were examples. saying, like, not even overscheduling. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, so what <laughs> I'll do there. talking about not overscheduling yourself. Right. If someone was to say, for example, like, um, let's say I have, because I know I need to write as well, and I know that I become not my best self if I don't have time to write. That comes down to the compulsion thing. So, for example, unless it was booked to a week or weeks, if I had a number of different things come up in terms of maybe five different podcasts on five different days in a week, I would reschedule so that I only had two that week and then maybe two the next week and then one the following week. And um, because I'd need those other three days to be doing my actual, my writing work, you know, um, and I would also know that I would not be happy to be doing five podcasts in a week. And so I would not be my, I would not actually want to share that much of myself. And I really think with these kind of chats, you have to be in a space where you're open and you're willing to share with the person asking the questions, right? So you have to understand that you can't do five in a week, well, not if you're me. So that would be an example. Yep. That's great. Understanding you, what your own energy is and, and so that yeah. you can turn up at your, at your at best. You, yeah. Or as close to as you can do, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
if I come to your uh, your own downtime um, yeah. when you're not researching, yeah. what what books do you reach for? What are the things that you kind of the stories that you love to absorb? The problem is, is that while I'm working on something, I am always reading something for a purpose of my book. Like I love them all, but that'll be why I'm reading it. I'll be reading it because it's set in the place that I want to, uh, that I'm writing about, or because there's something about the character's job that I want to know more about from that perspective, or because like there will always be a reason for it. So in that way, I'm probably not very, very good at turning off even TV shows that I'm watching. I'll be only watching TV shows that are based in the place that I'm setting it. Cause I want to really get the scenery into my mind's eye, you know, um, or, uh, so I don't really, I mean, like books that I do love, let me think, let me look at what's behind me that I've read recently. Um, I'm reading a lot of the classics at the moment, but that's for a whole other reason. But I actually am loving them. Like I read, I reread The Great Gatsby recently. I really, really loved it, right? Um, and I've read that multiple times. I'm really getting into Bukowski only because he's just like so bad and so dark, but it's kind of interesting, you know. Um, I read, I read um, Joan yep. Didion, play, um, play It As It Lays, and I loved it so much. She's just so smart and so witty, and I literally highlighted the whole thing. Um, what else have I read recently? I've recently, oh, you know what I'm in the middle of? That's great. The Liars by, it's just come out, um, She's and she's a cool girl as well, Petronella McGovern. Um, so that is great. Um, let me think. What did I read before that? Oh, my God. I read something called Rattled by Ellis Gunn last week. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to answer that, honestly, because a lot of the a time I'm reading it for purpose. Yeah. 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 No, that's that's amazing. Look, Pip, I have really appreciated the conversation and thank you for sharing your story and just some of the the navigations around wanting to do more in life I think is one yeah. of the things I've really take, taken away from from this conversation. If mm -hmm. I come with the final question, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you yeah. hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Um, to live with courage, to live with absolute courage. I'll sign up for that as hard as it will be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because good. I actually think that's the kind of life that you don't get to the end of your life and look back on and regret. I feel like that's the kind of life that you are so proud of if you've just, if you've lived with courage. So. Thank you, Pip. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. There is so much from this conversation with Pip that I have loved. In fact, I think it's going to stick with me for a little while thinking around not only her rhythm of work and where creativity comes from, but even that sense of I do what I want and eventually I will want to do the tax return because that will be important. Just interesting kind of take on this sense of particularly when we overschedule our time so much. Uh, so that's something I'm going to take forward for myself to think about. What is it that I might want to do and where are those kind of spits and spurts of creativity? Uh, as well as getting things done. Her sharing of some of her experiences, including a car accident, that sense of I've still got more to do, that there are key things in life. There's something about that that was quite visceral. Hearing Pip talk about that 
Um, I love her counterpoint in how she talks about the strength and vulnerability of the characters and that (laughs) her experience of life being a little bit like a psychological thriller with love woven through, you know, there are times where I think it kind of fits for us a little bit. So energy, enthusiasm, authenticity, just a beautiful conversation with Pip and please make sure you can connect with Pip. Uh, We'll put all the links in the show notes where you can make sure you do that. Again, if you've loved this conversation, my ask would be is if you can share this with others so that we can continue to create and dive into great conversations with extraordinary people. Uh, If you are on Apple Podcasts, if you can take two minutes, maybe even 30 seconds to rate and leave a review for Standout Life Podcasts, that would just be so invaluable for me. From my perspective, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I love these conversations, but more importantly, one of the things I do love to hear is the feedback on how people connect with the guests and the conversations that we dive into. Until next time, have a great week. I'm Ali Hill for Standout Life.